Good evening. This is coming to you from Portland, Oregon. Tonight is part two of a mooncast regarding confidence, self-image, and using visualization to direct our behaviors, attitudes, and our lives in the direction we truly wish them to be going. Last week I read a letter I wrote to someone who was struggling with some of these issues. I'll be touching on things directly from an old gem called Psycho-Cybernetics by a surgeon chap named Maxwell Maltz, and another book, Creative Visualization, by a wonderful woman called Shakti Gawain. I first heard about Psycho-Cybernetics from a good friend of mine while he and I were discussing interesting books we'd recently read. I can't really remember where I first heard about creative visualization. I'm pretty sure I just grabbed it from the used section at Powell's. I won't go into their personal history so we can get to the topics at hand. You can look those up yourself. Both authors have since passed on, so their respective books are now widely available for free. And I'll provide a link to the digital versions of those if you're interested. Just a caveat regarding psychocybernetics. I don't agree 100% with everything Maltz has to offer in this book, but the basic premise and the exercises I most certainly recommend. This is an example of how we don't need to agree with everything in a book to gain perspective from it, minus treasures, and use them as tools for our growth. I would hope, as with many practices I present, you try these things for yourself, take from them what resonates with you and what exercises work after making an honest endeavor with them, and then discard the rest. I never follow any book or practice to the letter, and I urge you not to either. Take what speaks to you, what works for you, and put that into practice. So, some of the things I was attempting to get across in the letter to the discouraged person was the fact that we all have a certain notion of who and what we are and what we are not, and that it's not necessarily accurate and most certainly not how others see us. A lot of times we focus on our failures, our shortcomings, and our faults, and choose not to focus on our strengths, our positive attributes, and all the good in and around us. The argument regarding self-image presented in psycho-cybernetics is that in order to have a happy, satisfying life, you have to have a realistic self-image. Not bloated and egomaniacal, but not lacking in self-confidence and self-defeatist either. Balanced, honest, realistic need to practice self-acceptance, have self-esteem, and be able to trust and believe in yourself. You have to know your strengths and weaknesses and be honest with yourself about them. Here are a few things to stay conscious of as you go through this that I'll expand on. When looking to goals or targets, things you want in your life, you have to imagine them as already being in existence, basically so you're directing yourself to something that you're already experiencing. I realize that may seem both odd and difficult, like how can you imagine something that's not yet come to pass, but that's just it. You have to use vivid imagination to accomplish this. Next, don't worry about the how when thinking of your goals and desires. This takes a bit of trust or blind faith. For those of you who aren't religious, I understand this can be difficult, but everyone has had some amazing circumstance in their life that has come to pass they could have never foreseen. And prior to its passing, you would have never predicted it happening or seen yourself accomplishing it, yet it miraculously came into being. Think and feel only in terms of the end result and not the mechanics or probability of it manifesting. Also, don't be afraid of acting or making mistakes through that action. Doing nothing will give you nothing, 
and at least making attempts and failing will help you course correct and adjust to get you moving closer to your goals and desires. You also have to learn from your mistakes, but stay conscious of not dwelling on them. Forget your past errors after you've learned from them and remember your successes and achievements. Usually, we do the opposite. With these things in mind, here's your first exercise. Select your goal, whether it be more confident, outgoing, healthier, thinner, more motivated, a better person to your partner, a better guitarist or ball player, whatever it is. Take 10 minutes out of your day and envision that version of yourself in a highly detailed mental picture. Every time you recall it, it should be just as vivid and detailed in your mind. If writing out a little script, drawing pictures, or piecing together a collage from personal photos or magazine clippings helps facilitate this, you can do that. 10 minutes a day, visualizing the same version of yourself. Try it for three weeks and see what happens. A great quote from Psycho-Cybernetics reads, Human beings always act and feel and perform in accordance with what they imagine to be true about themselves and their environment. This quote sums up our entire experience in the way our nervous system interfaces with the world. The author actually says it's the most important statement of the book, and he makes an excellent point. This is not theory. This is not something that can be debated, dissected, or reanalyzed. As humans, we will always act and perform and experience appropriate results in accordance with what we imagine to be true about ourselves and our environment. It's simply the way we're built, and again, the way our brains and nervous systems interface with life experience. Likewise, your nervous system cannot tell the difference between an imagined experience and a real one. Your nervous system reacts appropriately to what you think or imagine to be true. This is something I've said before and will express countless times again to pound it into your brains because it's a fundamental reason why visualization works so well. Plus, it's a good point to bring up to skeptics or non-believers. Along with the concrete studies that have been done surrounding visualization, including goal-oriented fields like sports. Consider this example of thoughts, beliefs, and imagination all being the same thing. Two newlyweds had an accident and as a result, one of them is getting a serious surgical procedure. After a few hours, the doctor comes out and tells the person in the waiting room the surgery did not go as planned and they lost a patient. Their partner has died. Blood pressure rises, tears start flowing from the face, and they become completely hysterical, screaming out a universal call of, Why? They denounce God, renounce their faith, all the usual existential freedom that ensues. Just then, the surgeon's assistant comes out, pulls the surgeon aside, and explains that's not the correct person he should have informed. The mix-up is addressed, the person finds their partner to be safe and sedated, surgery gone just fine. Elated, yet nerves still trembling, the person curses the surgeon and assistant to kindly get their shit together and runs out for a smoke. Now, the information this person was presented was completely false, yet their belief in it created with utmost certainty its actual existence, at least in their mind, in their nervous system. The person reacted to what they thought, believed, and imagined the environment to be. The messages brought to us from the environment consist of nerve impulses from the various sense organs. 
These nerve impulses are decoded, interpreted, and evaluated in the brain and made known to us in the forms of ideas or mental images. And it is these mental images that we react to, whether thought, believed, or imagined, and affecting our entire system, they're all the same. You act and feel not according to what things are really like, but according to the image your mind holds of what they're like. You have certain mental images of yourself, your world, the people around you, and you behave as though these images were truth, the actual reality, rather than the things they represent. So, I ask, if our ideas and mental images concerning ourselves are distorted or unrealistic, then our reaction to our environment will also be inaccurate, right? I would think so. Your present self-image was built on your own imaginative images of yourself in the past, which grew out of interpretations and evaluations you placed on your experience. Now, you use the same method to build an adequate self-image that you previously used to build an inadequate one. After you tried the first visualization exercise for a few weeks, try this one next. Set aside a period of 30 minutes each day where you can be alone and undisturbed. Relax and make yourself comfortable. Now close your eyes and exercise your imagination. If you can get better results imagining you're sitting in front of a large movie screen watching a film, go with that. The important thing is to make these pictures as vivid and detailed as possible. You want your mental pictures to delineate actual experience as much as possible. The way you do this is to pay attention to small details, sights, sounds, objects in your imagined environment. Details of the imagined environment are important in this exercise because, for all practical purposes, you are creating a practice experience. If the imagination is vivid enough and detailed enough, your imagination practice is equivalent to an actual experience insofar as your nervous system is concerned. Next important thing to remember is during these 30 minutes you see yourself acting and reacting appropriately, successfully, and ideally. It doesn't matter how you acted yesterday, you don't need to try to have faith you will act in some ideal way tomorrow. Your nervous system will take care of that in time if you continue to practice visualization. Don't tell yourself, I'm going to act this way tomorrow. Just tell yourself, I'm going to imagine myself acting this way for 30 minutes right now. See yourself acting, feeling, and being as you want to be. Imagine how you would feel if you were already the sort of person you want to be. If you've been shy and timid, see yourself moving among people with ease and self-assurance and feeling good about yourself. If you've been fearful and anxious in certain situations, see yourself acting calmly and deliberately, acting with confidence, courage, and feeling good about it. This exercise builds new quote-unquote memories or stored data in your brain and nervous system and builds a new image of self. After practicing it for a while, you'll find yourself acting differently, more or less automatically and spontaneously without trying. You don't need to take thought to try or make an effort in order to feel ineffective or act inadequately now and in the past. These things are automatic and spontaneous because of the memories, real and imagined, you have built into yourself. You'll find it will work just as automatically using positive thoughts and experiences as with negative ones. Here are some steps further broken down to make it easier. Number one, write out a brief outline or description of the mental movie you intend to construct, experiment with, develop, and view it in your mind. Number two, set aside 30 minutes a day 
Find a quiet private place and relax. Close your eyes and begin playing, editing, and replaying your movie in your mind. 3. For the first 10 days, gradually alter your movie so that you act exactly as you desire and achieve the experience and results you desire. For the remaining 11 days, play and enjoy that movie repeatedly without change. Remember, as vividly as possible. Now, just a side note. Some people might have an issue with visualization or seeing images in their mind's eye. That's fine. Some people might say, oh, I can't do this because I can't create mental images. It's not necessary to see mental images to do this. Some people can close their eyes and see things very clearly. Others can't see anything and actually just think about things deeply. And some people think about things and get a feeling or impression from them. Don't get hung up on whether your version of imagination is different than anyone else's, or even different to how I'm describing it here. We all have wild imaginations. We all think about things that have happened to us in the past, and things we wish to happen to us in the future, and even terrible circumstances we hope don't ever happen to us. Our minds all work like this by running amok and producing crazy thoughts all the time. Whatever your personal way of imagining is, go with that. Whether by seeing images, thinking deeply, or getting a feeling from it, it doesn't really matter. You don't have to be some mental image master in order to do this. Visualization is simply relaxing, running an intended script in our mind, and acting as if it's already come to pass. Do whatever works for you. As with the person I was writing to, a lot of people believe there is something about them that makes other people reject them, look down on them, or even outright ridicule them. A lot of times this thing doesn't even exist, or it's all in their head or magnified to an absurd, unrealistic level, yet it causes them dysfunction or hinders progress in certain areas of their life. These can be physical, mental, or emotional attributes, and it doesn't really matter where it came from, whether it be a teacher, your parents, siblings, the media, or wherever. If we're convinced of something, then it's true, in our minds, in our lives, and that's our experience. This programming came into being either by an authoritative source, through repetition, or through intensity. Likewise, deprogramming and reprogramming yourself requires you to provide these same factors. The good thing is we all have the ability to deprogram and reprogram ourselves and discard these feelings of inferiority and limitation. As soon as we change our beliefs, we change all these notions of, I can't, I could never do that, I'm not good enough, I'm not smart enough, I'm not good looking enough, I'm not thin enough, I don't deserve that, I'm not a good person, or any of the other bullshit that's been ingrained into us either by outside forces or perpetuated ourselves. Everyone, no matter who they are, is inferior to someone else in some way, shape, or form. For instance, I'm not anywhere near as good at drums as Danny Carey from Tool, but does that make me a shitty drummer? Nope. Does that make me an inferior person? Not in the least bit. And who knows, perhaps Danny Carey's knack for putting together badass music mixes isn't anywhere near as good as mine. Maybe he doesn't know how to keep people's attention outside of playing drums, whereas I obviously do or else you wouldn't be listening to this, right? The point is, we can't measure or base the metric of what's acceptable for us using outside or exterior sources. You are your own person with your own strengths and weaknesses, 
your own abilities, and your own limitations. But you have to be honest and real with yourself about them and not base them on unrealistic bullshit. A lot of times the feeling of inferiority doesn't come from our own expectations but from someone else's based on their skills, successes, or attributes. Whenever you measure yourself against someone else's norm, you will always come out second best. And that's usually all the evidence we need in confirming to ourselves we're not good enough, not worthy enough, or shouldn't have even tried in the first place. This type of thinking needs to be ripped out by the roots if you're ever to find any semblance of happiness in the future. Sometimes our memories of past errors, failures, or painful and negative experiences actually help us and contribute to the learning process as long as they are used properly as negative feedback data and seen as deviations from the positive goal desired. As soon as the error has been recognized as such, it is equally important that the error be consciously forgotten and that the successful attempt remembered and emphasized. Our errors, mistakes, failures, and sometimes even our humiliations were necessary steps in the learning process. However, they were meant to be a means to an end, not an end in themselves. When they've served their purpose, they should be forgotten. If we consciously dwell on our mistakes or consciously feel guilty about them and keep berating or judging ourselves over them, then we make those mistakes or failures held in our imagination and memory again and again. Why be someone who insists on reliving the past over and over in your imagination, continually criticizing yourself for past mistakes, continually condemning yourself for past deeds? Fuck that. Continually criticizing yourself for past mistakes or actions, whether from years ago or minutes ago, does not help you, and actually tends to perpetuate the very behavior you would like to change. Memories of past failures can adversely affect you in the present if you dwell on them and think to yourself, I failed yesterday, so I fail again today. This is neither logical nor rational. Thinking, I can't, in advance without trying and in the absence of any evidence to the contrary, makes no sense at all whatsoever. The minute that we change our minds and stop giving power to the past, the past, with its mistakes, loses its power over us. Here's an exercise to help you regain power called Reclaiming Self, Power, and Position. This is from a book called Six Ways written by Aidan Wachter. I'll leave the link for those of you interested. It's a great practice. Do each step three times before moving on to the next. You can also do them in order. One, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, if you want. Go with what seems good to you. Number one. Forgive yourself for your failures, out loud, in a ritualized setting. Whatever works for you, light some candles, incense, pour yourself a cup of water, tea, set yourself up a little altar, put your photo on it, give yourself incense, flowers, whatever you're into. You can do more, but the core thing is you let yourself settle in a quiet, calm, solid place and say, I forgive myself for my failures, each and every one of them past, present, and future. Repeat this three times. Number two. After you've done that and felt whatever you felt from it, call back all of your power that has strayed from you in any way. Say, I call back all of my power, all that was taken from me, all that I gave away, all that I lost. I call it all back to me, as it was, as it is, as it shall be. And then repeat that three times. Number three, 
bless yourself and give thanks. Here and now, ever and always, as a personification of the infinite, I bless myself. I give thanks to the powers that aid and guard me. I thank them for their help, their protection, and their infinite blessings. As it was, as it is, as it shall be. And then repeat that three times. Feel free to change any words you say to make it resonate more deeply with you, just as long as you keep the intention and include some form of past, present, and future. Or, as it was, as it is, as it shall be. It's recommended you do this twice a day. As I said, you can follow the link and get it from Aiden's website. There's a shortened version there, too. I'm going to repeat the last line before the reclaiming rite because I think it's a great one. The minute that we change our minds and stop giving power to the past, the past, with its mistakes, loses its power over us. This is pure truth. You are not your past. You are your present. Who and what you are is determined by what you do, by your current actions. I wrote something a few weeks back to a young guy who was struggling after a brush with death that relates to this. The freedom and responsibility is placed on your shoulders, and with that comes choice. The choice to act like a decent human being, to be the best version of yourself, and try to always love and help people you know and people you meet. It's your choice though, and no one else can make it but you. You can start living life today like you want to live the rest of your life. All it takes is choice and action. Our choices and actions over time make us who we are in this life. Ask yourself who you want to be and then start doing it with conviction." End quote. This is the same in how we use our minds and effectively wield the acts of visualization to cut down old, undesirable versions of ourselves by replacing them with new ones with choice and conviction. You can change from anything to anything else by changing your self-image by providing it with a new truth, challenging what you believe to be true, discovering it is based on illusion, and replacing that truth with another truth. You can achieve your best possible self if you form a picture in your imagination of the self you want to be and see yourself in that new role. This is a necessity in personality transformation regardless of the method of therapy used. Somehow, before you can change, you must be able to envision yourself in that new role. Our habits and self-image often go together. Habits are consistent with our self-image and personality. If you change one, you will inevitably change the other. When we deliberately set out to develop and change new and better habits, our self-image tends to outgrow the old habits and grow into the new. Virtually all of our behaviors, feelings, and responses are habitual. Attitudes, emotions, and beliefs become habitual as well. Over time, attitudes and ways of thinking and being were learned and deemed appropriate for certain situations, and then we tend to think, feel, and act and react the same way whenever the situation or similar circumstance arises again. These things are learned and programmed along the way as a result of our experiences and environments. But what may have served us in the past may no longer be appropriate for us now, in the present. The awesome thing is, these habits can be changed and even reversed simply by making the conscious decision to do so and then practicing new habits and acting out new behaviors in their place. 
It requires practice and your attention until the new patterns and habits are learned, but it's totally possible with a bit of effort. In Bertrand Russell's book, The Conquest of Happiness, he talks about locating and recognizing your self-criticism and judgment and convincing yourself otherwise. He says, It's quite possible to overcome infantile suggestions of the unconscious and even to change the contents of the unconscious by employing the right kind of technique. Whenever you begin to feel remorse for an act in which your reason tells you is not wicked, examine the causes of your feeling of remorse and convince yourself in detail of their absurdity. Let your conscious beliefs be so vivid and emphatic that they make an impression upon your unconscious strong enough to cope with the impressions made by your nurse or your mother when you were an infant. Do not be content with an alternation between moments of rationality and moments of irrationality. Look into their irrationality closely with a determination not to respect it and not to let it dominate you. Whenever it thrusts foolish thoughts or feelings into your consciousness, pull them up by the roots, examine them, and reject them. Do not allow yourself to remain the vacillating creature swayed half by reason and half by infantile folly. Basically, he's saying, find these false criticisms, faults, and self-defeatist notions of self, and after examining how ridiculous they are, discard them, and whenever they arise again, make up your mind to not let them go unchallenged or have influence over you. Replace them with your new rational version of reasoning and belief rather than what you've always allowed to justify their existence. Whatever negative thoughts you have that are inconsistent with what you know to be absolutely true and rational, reject those negative thoughts outright whenever they present themselves. Never again allow them to run amok and fester as dominant thoughts and feelings in your consciousness and in this new version of yourself you are creating. Another good thing to do is introspection and determine your beliefs about yourself, about the external world, and even about other people that stems from negative behavior. Does something always seem to be causing you to miss chances or successes whenever they're close at hand? Do you feel unworthy of success or that you don't deserve it? Are you always uneasy in the presence of others? Do you feel inferior to them or feel that people and the world is hostile and unfriendly in general? Do you get anxious or fearful for no apparent reason in situations that are in fact safe and unthreatening? Would you like to live a certain way or have a certain type of life, but when asked, you immediately produce a long list of reasons why it could never happen for you? A lot of the time, these reasons aren't based on rational thought. They're merely beliefs, and beliefs are always subject to change. Keep in mind that behaviors and feelings all stem from beliefs. So, to determine the belief responsible for your behaviors and feelings, ask yourself why. Are there things you would really like to pursue in life but always fall back on the reasons why you can't? Ask yourself why. Why do you believe you can't do this or pursue that? Then ask yourself if that reason is based on actual rational fact or based on an assumption and actually a false conclusion. And don't just ask yourself these questions casually. Really delve down with deep introspection. Think hard on them. Get emotional about them. You may find you've cheated yourself and sold yourself short, not because of any rational reason, but simply because of an irrational and erroneous belief. 
Remember, the job of conscious, rational thought is to know the truth and to form correct evaluations, estimations, and opinions. In this connection, most of us are prone to underestimate ourselves and overestimate the nature of difficulty facing us. Many people live out their entire lives believing that their circumstances cannot be improved, their problems cannot be solved, even that somehow they are incapable of achieving the success, prosperity, or happiness they see others achieving. Don't let yourself fall into that trap. And if you're already caught in it, you must endeavor to release yourself to find your true potential. Now, in order to be effective in changing belief and behavior, rational thought must be accompanied with deep feeling and desire. You have to picture what you would like to be or have or experience and assume for the moment that these things are possible. Arouse a deep desire for these things and become enthusiastic about them. Dwell on them and keep going over them in your mind. Your present negative beliefs were formed by thoughts and feelings. Generate enough emotion or deep feeling and your new thoughts and ideas will cancel them out. If you take a step back, you can see you're actually using a process you've likely used before. Worry and stress. The difference here is you're changing your goals from negative to positive. When we worry, we first picture an undesirable future outcome or goal very vividly in our imagination. It takes no effort or willpower, but we usually keep dwelling on it, picturing it, and thinking about the end result. We consider the idea that it might actually happen. This constant repetition, imagining, and thinking about the possibilities makes the end result appear more and more real. After a time, appropriate emotions are automatically generated regarding this imagined thing. Fear, anxiety, discouragement, all relating to the undesirable end result we're worrying about and have completely made up in our minds. When trying to imagine a desired outcome or experience, simply imagine the goal and you can just as easily generate positive emotions. Constantly picturing to yourself and dwelling on a desirable end result will also make the possibility seem more real and again, appropriate emotions of enthusiasm, excitement, encouragement, and happiness will automatically be generated. So, your new task is to keep your conscious, rational thoughts focused on what you want, the goals you wish to achieve experiences you wish to have and concentrate on those rather than on what you don't want. Once you have arrived at an understanding of your true desires, spending time and effort concentrating on what you do not want is not rational and serves you no purpose. Here's another exercise. Number one, use introspection to determine and honestly assess whether you have any problems you're no longer attempting to resolve only because you've accepted the belief that they cannot be resolved. Determine whether you are living out circumstances in your life that are unfulfilling or even demeaning to you because you have accepted the belief you can't alter or change them. Reconsider anything and everything. Apply your new rational way of thinking and being to challenge these beliefs and then use your imagination to seek out and try out new and different possibilities. Consider the questions mentioned before. Why do I believe that I can't? Then ask yourself, is this belief based on an actual fact or on an assumption or false conclusion? Is there any rational reason for such a belief? Could it be that you are mistaken about this belief? Would you come to the same conclusion about someone else in a similar situation? Why should you continue to act and feel as if this were true if there is no good reason to believe it? Number two, 
Out of all this rational thought, you may identify a new target, desire, or goal. If so, take note of them or write them down and use the previous visualization exercises to start working on these desires or goals. In order to arrive at our desires, goals, or targets, we have to be moving toward them in some way. By this I mean you can't just sit around doing nothing to change anything about your current situation and expect things to come to you. But you also can't stress and strain and toil over them 100% of the time either. If you're trying to solve a problem, invent something, create something, write a book, whatever it is, you have to put yourself on the path toward it and then give yourself time to breathe. Ask any writer, inventor, or other creative artist and they'll tell you creative ideas are not consciously thought out by constant stressful contemplation, but often come automatically, spontaneously, somewhat like a bolt of lightning out of the sky, but only after the conscious mind has let go of the problem and is engaged in thinking of something else. This is done by focusing on something, knowing the target you wish to hit, and then letting it go. Constant, arduous, contemplating, and stressing won't get you where you need to go in most instances. There needs to be some downtime. So learn to make sure you give your mind time to relax. Don't visualize and dwell on your goals and desires all of your waking hours. The artist and director David Lynch calls this pulling ideas from the ocean of creativity. He says original ideas are often buried deep within the brain that ideas have to travel quite a ways before they come into the conscious mind, and meditation creates a pathway for those ideas, allowing them to travel freely to the surface. Ideas are like bait on a hook, he says. As with fishing, patience is rewarded. Sometimes all you need is part of an idea to see where it takes you. Then you may end up catching more fragments, and then more. And sometimes you hit a wall. That's okay. Sometimes your mind needs a break that's when you sleep on it. There are countless accounts of inventors and scientists who had been working on a problem only to discover the answer after a good night's rest. This is a key lesson to learn from and practice on your own. So you have to consciously gather all the information available on the subject, consider all the possible courses of action, and above all, have a burning desire to solve the problem. After defining the problem, having focused on and seen the desired end result in your imagination, having secured all the information and facts, let it go, sleep on it, let it lie for a while. At this point, any additional struggling, fretting, or worrying won't help and will likely hinder the situation or solution. There's a line from a song I wrote years ago that goes, if you seek the answers, you will surely find when the searching ceases, that is when it will come. And this is exactly what I was talking about. A note on happiness. Psychologist Dr. Matthew Chappelle says, Happiness is purely internal. It is produced not by objects, but by ideas, thoughts, and attitudes which can be developed and constructed by the individual's own activities, irrespective of the environment. He makes a valid point here. By taking deliberate thought and making the decision to be happy and think pleasant thoughts as much as possible during our waking state, we can alter the effect of events and circumstances in our daily lives that currently make us unhappy, frustrated, or even enraged or depressed. 
To a large extent, we react to petty annoyances and inconveniences with negativity, dissatisfaction, resentment, and irritability, all purely out of habit. We've practiced reacting this way so long, it's become habitual. And it's a horrible cycle to keep ourselves turning in day in and day out. I know for me personally, years back, little things would set me off, sometimes into a rage, and it was commonplace and habitual. I didn't even notice it anymore. It took a coworker pointing it out to me one day for me to realize. They asked why I was so angry all the time. I was kind of taken aback and surprised, but then as I thought about it, I had been letting little bullshit things get my temper flaring that entire year. As I thought about it, I realized even little things like missing the bus or waking up late would send me into a rage too. During that time, I was missing sleep and dealing with asshole upstairs neighbors, which certainly played a role in being stressed out and on the edge, but the habit is what kept me in it, so much so I wasn't even conscious of it anymore. Until it was brought to my attention and I began consciously looking for it, and then I was able to consciously make a change. These can be things that we take personal or things that are completely impersonal that we still let negatively affect us by reacting negatively to them. Maybe when someone interrupts us as we're speaking or when someone doesn't come through for us when they said they would. Perhaps like me, missing the bus, waking up late, getting stuck in traffic when we're running late, getting caught out in the rain the one day you forget your umbrella. No matter what the situation, we often react with resentment, frustration, anger, even self-pity. We react with, and another word, unhappiness. And the root cause of this happiness is taking things personal that aren't personal at all. It's purely circumstantial, but we react as if it's complete and utter tragedy. Some of us even react as if the universe is constantly against us. Think of how TV audiences act. The applause sign lights up and everyone applauds. When they come back from commercial, the camera is sweeping through the audience and everyone is clapping and freaking out. The host cracks a joke, everyone cackles with obligatory laughter. Essentially, the audience acts like sheep, reacting as they are told or expected to react. And you are doing the same thing in your daily life. Letting other people and outward events and circumstances dictate your feelings, actions, and reactions. You are obedient to your master, your habits. Whenever a situation gives you the signal to be angry, upset, or unhappy. We have to stop letting external events dictate our actions and moods. People often say things like, well, you made me feel this way. No. Their reaction to it is how they chose to respond or their habitual way of responding to these types of situations. That is what makes them feel a certain way. People who have no control over their emotions or no capacity to see things impersonally inevitably react how they always do, how they always have. This is the problem with cancel culture and the blame game people so often play in recent times. People actually possess the moronic idiocy to try and tell comedians the meanings or intentions of their jokes all because of the way the joke made that person feel. This is utter insanity. First off, you can't tell someone else what they meant by something they said, because you're not in their head, and things will always be received and interpreted differently than they were initially sent or transmitted. That's just the nature of communication in human beings, for a myriad of reasons. More to the point though, you can't blame other people for what you feel. 
If you react negatively to something, that's how you chose to interpret and process it in your nervous system, predominantly through habit. A joke that is disgusting, repulsive, or in bad taste to you might be absolutely hilarious to the person sitting next to you. If two people get fired from a job, one person may be devastated while the other might see it as a gift and an opportunity to start a new career or start down a new path in life. It's all in how we interpret it and process the incoming information and consciously choose to react to it. The Greek philosopher Epictetus once said, We are disturbed not by the things that happen, but by our opinion of the things that happen. At any point in time, the circumstances and facts in the world and in our personal lives can justify either a pessimistic and bleak outlook or an optimistic and hopeful outlook, all depending on our choice. It's a matter of selection, attention, and decision. And for all those thinking of it, this is not willed ignorance or self-deceit, nor is it a matter of being honest or dishonest, realistic or unrealistic, as many pessimists will use to justify their negative disposition. I used to justify it the same way. While there is a lot of trouble in the world, there's also a whole lot of beauty. It's merely a matter of what we choose to give primary attention to, what we focus on, and what thoughts we choose to keep in our mind. Anyone who's ever taken LSD can confirm the reality of this fact as it becomes quite exaggerated when you're in the midst of a psychedelic experience. Whatever you focus on and contemplate becomes magnified sometimes to the point of it actually seeming real, hyper-real. So it's imperative that we break these habitual reactions and have a more objective view of the world within and around us. Obviously this is something that takes practice and self-control to begin applying in your life, but it's not impossible. We simply have to strive in leaving our opinions out of things, being more objective and less subjective to the situations in our lives. Here's an exercise regarding reactions and habits. I'm calling it MESHO, an acronym for Meet Every Situation Head-On. Little nod to Psychic TV. Form the habit of reacting aggressively and positively toward threats and problems. Form the habit of staying goal-oriented all the time, regardless of what happens. Do this by practicing a positive aggressive attitude, both in actual everyday situations and in your imagination. See yourself in your imagination taking positive, intelligent action toward solving a problem or reaching a goal. See yourself reacting to threats not by running away or evading them, but by meeting and dealing with them head-on and in an aggressive and intelligent way. This is an anecdote from Psycho-Cybernetics I thought was worth reading. I honestly didn't intend to be quoting so much and having such a lengthy episode, but the text just kind of took me here. It's entitled, Happiness versus Unhappiness equals Facts versus Opinions. When I announced that I wanted to be a doctor, I was told that this could not be because my folks had no money. It was a fact that my mother had no money. It was only an opinion that I could never be a doctor. Later, I was told I could never take postgraduate courses in Germany and that it was impossible for a young plastic surgeon to hang out his own shingle and go into business for himself in New York. I did all these things. And one of the things that helped me was that I kept reminding myself that all these quote-unquote impossibles were opinions, not facts. I not only managed to reach my goals, but I was happy in the process. Even when I had to pawn my own overcoat to buy medical books and do without lunch in order to purchase cadavers. I was in love with a beautiful girl. She married someone else. 
These were facts. But I kept reminding myself that it was merely opinion that this was a quote-unquote catastrophe and that life was not worth living. I not only got over it, but it turned out it was one of the luckiest things that ever happened to me. When the author was asked in the past to provide a succinct definition of his book, he said, The essence of psychocybernetics is the accurate, calm, and ultimately automatic separation of facts from fiction, fact from opinion, actual circumstance from magnified obstacle, so that our actions and reactions are solidly based on truth, not our own or others' opinions. As you know, I'm all about bringing experience to the forefront because this is the best way to learn something by actually experiencing it. So here are a few more exercises you can put into your toolbox. Burning your habits with fire. Another way you can rid yourself of negative emotions or unwanted habits that's discussed is actually something I've talked about in a previous episode from a different book. The condensed version is... You form a mental image of these negative feelings or attributes and then envision them burning up as vividly as possible. You can also do this by physically writing them down and then actually burning them. Obviously, if you choose to do it this way, be smart about it, be careful, do it outside, and if you do it inside, use a metal burn bowl and don't burn your house down. To get a more detailed description of this exercise, you can check out episode 6, Methods to Initiate Behavioral Change. Honestly, if you're enjoying this episode, that entire episode will probably interest you and be beneficial, but if you just want this specific exercise, you can find it in the time code under Identifying Patterns and Habits Log Burning. Positive Outlook Exercise This is one regarding habit. Determine which shoe you put on first and how you tie your shoes. Now, consciously decide for the next 30 days you're going to form a new habit by putting on the other shoe first and tying your laces in a different way. Each morning as you decide to put on your shoes in this different manner, let this serve as a reminder to change other habitual ways of thinking, acting, and feeling throughout the day. Say to yourself as you tie your shoes, I'm beginning the day in a new and improved way. Then consciously decide that throughout the day you'll do a few of these things. Number one, I will be as optimistic as possible. Number two, I will act a little more friendly toward other people. Number three, I'm going to be a little less critical and a little more tolerant of other people, their faults, failings, and mistakes. I will adopt the best possible interpretations on their actions. Number four, wherever applicable, I'm going to act as if success were inevitable and that I'm already the sort of person I want to be. I will practice acting and feeling like this new person. Number five, I will not let my own opinion color facts in a pessimistic or negative way. Number six, I will practice smiling at least three times during the day. Number seven, regardless of what happens, I will react as calmly and intelligently as possible. Number eight, I will completely ignore and close my mind to all pessimistic and negative circumstances that I can do nothing to change. Now, I realize some of these sound super cheesy. They do. Smiling three times a day? Come on. No, but I urge you, give these a try. Just do some of these things and see where they take you. I promise you won't be disappointed. Each of these habitual ways of acting, feeling, and thinking will have beneficial and constructive influence on your self-image and attitude. 
Act them out for the entire 30 days. Experience them, and then determine whether worry, guilt, shame, anger, and hostility have not been diminished, and if confidence has not been increased. Another beneficial practice to adopt is having goals to look toward, or even a project or hobby, so you always have something to look forward to. In this way, you won't always be looking backward into the past or sitting idle with nothing to do but think yourself into circles or contemplate all the horrible shit your mind can come up with. Nostalgia is okay, but too much of it or living in the past is no good. In recent years, I've found it increasingly difficult to not focus on my early 20s and compare it to now because it seemed things were much more exciting back then. But I know it's silly to compare, and something that helps me keep focused are the goals and things I want to accomplish before I'm six feet in the ground. And looking backward isn't going to help me achieve these goals any quicker. I can appreciate the past, but living in it or for it is a fool's errand. A good example of how not having goals to reach for can be detrimental is clearly illustrated in the fact that some people pass away shortly after retirement. You think that's mere coincidence? Of course it isn't. They no longer have anything to look towards, so their entire existence changes from inertia to stagnation. They have no goals to look toward and nothing to live for any longer, or little to live for any longer. So, get a goal, project, or passion. So this next one isn't so much an exercise, but what we just touched on. Get yourself a goal or a project. Decide what you want out of a situation. Always have something ahead of you to look forward to, to work for, and hope for. Look forward, not backward. Develop a stronger sense of passion for the future that's significantly greater than your nostalgia for the past. This passion for the future can keep you useful, which is something myself and many of my friends are currently contemplating as we grow a little older at a seemingly faster rate. Even your body doesn't function well when you stop striving for goals and have nothing to look forward to, so it stands to reason this has an effect on your mentality. When you're not striving and not looking forward, you're not really living, you're merely existing. I think this has a lot to do with the current state of middle-aged male suicides in recent years. You get to a point in life where all you're doing is punching a clock day in and day out and not really moving toward anything except certain death. You have to be living for something, something you really care about. In addition to your personal goals, you could have at least one impersonal goal or cause. Something or some way to help your fellow man if you have a need or an itch to do so. Now, I touched on things earlier regarding our past and our mistakes, but it's a fundamental concept to strengthening self-image, so I want to emphasize this. You have to realize you are not your mistakes. When you thoroughly accept that you are not your mistakes, you are then free to acknowledge them, learn from them, set them aside, and move on from them without being swallowed by them like a pit of quicksand. When you strengthen your self-image by understanding that you are not your mistakes, you'll find it easier to take risks and be confident without worrying. You'll be more assertive in the workplace, more confident meeting new people or approaching potential romantic partners or business partners, less stressed and more confident during job interviews. You may finally have the courage to launch that new business you've been thinking about doing forever, picking up and moving out of town without all the hesitation and second-guessing, or even have more ease bouncing back from tragedy, which can help everyone in life. 
These are all examples of how confidence and self-image will help you live courageously and stand up to pressure and adversity and help you learn how to meet every situation head on. Stop carrying around a mental picture of yourself as a person less capable than others by making unfair apples to oranges comparisons. Celebrate your victories, small or large. Recognize and build on your strengths and continuously remind yourself that you are not your mistakes. You also have to be courageous enough and willing enough to take action. The difference between a successful person and a failure is usually not due to abilities or ideas, but the courage to bet on ideas, take a calculated risk, and take action. Standing still and failure to act causes people who are faced with a problem to become nervous, unsure, or trapped. So when faced with a problem, study the situation thoroughly. Go over the various courses of action possible to you in your imagination and the consequences that could follow from each course. Pick out the course that gives you the most promise and move forward. If you wait until you're absolutely certain and sure before you act, you'll never get anything accomplished. Anytime you act, you can be wrong, and nothing is certain. Any decision you make can turn out to be the wrong one. But you can't let that deter you from going after the goal you want. You gotta have the courage to take risk making mistakes, risk failure, or even risk being humiliated. A step in the wrong direction is better than staying in the same place and getting nothing done your entire life. Learn to have some courage and live a little. Then, once you're moving forward, you can correct your course as you go, but you'll get nowhere and get nothing from life by standing still. I'll mention this again because it's another important technique. Form the habit of remembering past successes and forgetting past failures. Many of us destroy our self-confidence by remembering past failures and forgetting our past successes. And not only that, we replay these failures over and over and compound them with powerful negative emotions like shame and guilt. It doesn't matter how many times you failed in the past. What matters is the courageous attempts. These are what should be remembered, replayed, reinforced, and emphasized over and over in your mind. You have to be willing to fail and suffer no damage to your self-esteem as a result. Every confident and successful person has a trail of failures and disappointments behind them. Learn to accept yourself as you are and start from there. Learn to emotionally tolerate imperfection in yourself. It's necessary to recognize our shortcomings, but disastrous to hate ourselves because of them. Differentiate between yourself and your behavior. You are not ruined or worthless because you made a mistake or got off course. Don't hate yourself because you're not perfect. You have a lot of company and imperfection. No one else is perfect and those who pretend are only bullshitting themselves while actually living miserable lives. Okay, so here are some thoughts and exercises regarding goals I feel should be addressed. These come from the book Creative Visualization I mentioned earlier. Some of you may be thinking regarding goals or potential scripts of visualization to practice. I don't even know what will make me happy. Or I don't know what I want. That's okay. Some of us have been in such a singular mode of living and have had certain habits for so long our imaginations or desires have become thoroughly stunted or handicapped. There are a few simple techniques to help you examine what's important to you or things you can set as goals. And keep in mind, nothing is set in stone here. You can always change your goals, 
You can always change the past around, no matter what anyone tells you or has told you, and especially what you might tell yourself to the contrary. You might also find the process of determining goals manifest some mental or emotional resistance. This is also okay. You might get overwhelmed, hopeless, even anxious. It's important to just let yourself experience these reactions and go through them. You also don't have to make this too complicated. Keep things simple if that works best for you. I'm a more detailed person, so when I first started this, it was total mayhem. Outlines and long lists and paragraphs and super overly complicated ridiculousness. I wouldn't suggest that unless you're a detailed person and you're good at selecting and analyzing small bits of info from much larger sections. What I can say is, the more you write out, the easier it may be later to downsize, discover what you don't want, and things to cross off your list. Alright, so first sit down with a pen and paper and write out the following categories. Work slash career, money, lifestyle slash possessions, relationships, creative self-expression, leisure slash travel, personal growth slash education, and world slash environment. Now, keeping in mind your present life situation, write down under each category some things you'd like to have, to change, or to improve in the near future. Don't think too hard about it. Simply write down any ideas that come to mind as good possibilities. The purpose of this is to loosen you up and get you thinking about what you want in the various areas of your life. Next, take another piece of paper and write at the top, if I could be, do, and have everything I want, this would be my ideal scene. Now list the same categories and after each one write a paragraph or two, or however much you want, describing your absolute ideal situation in life. The purpose of this exercise is to expand you beyond your present limits, so let your fantasies take over and don't hold back. This is allowing yourself to have anything you could ever want. And by the way, the last category, world environment, has to do with your ideal situation of the world you'd like to see. So things like no more hunger or homelessness, world peace, environmental consciousness, proper educational systems, effective and affordable healthcare systems, proper attention and treatment of veterans, governments working for the people rather than corporations, or anything you can think of that's important to you regarding the world and your environment. Now, after you've done all the categories, reread this entire ideal scene and think on it for a while. Create a mental picture of yourself having this wonderful life in the beautiful world you've created. Next, take a new piece of paper. By the way, you can use your phone, but I suggest actually using pen and paper because it's easier to add things, cross things out, and kind of see the whole progression of this as you go, and then look back on it and be able to reference it down the road. Now, based on what seems most meaningful from that ideal scene you created prior, make a list of the 10 most important goals for your life as you feel them to be right now. Remember, you can change this list, and believe me, you will as time goes on. Next, now write down my five-year goals and write a list of the most important things you'd like to accomplish within the next five years. 
As with visualization, it's good to write these things down as if they've already happened and are currently in existence. So write them in the present tense. For instance, I now have my own 10-acre farm in the country with animals, a pond to swim in, and an art studio where I work. Maybe it's more career-oriented and you write, I'm so happy and fulfilled with my awesome design job. I love it. Or, my new business is giving me freedom, keeping me busy, and my life is full of purpose. This is your life and these are your goals though, so apply a similar formula to you. Be sure to write down the things that are meaningful to you and not the things you think you should want. These should also not be things you think other people would praise or accept or be in agreement with. You have to be completely honest with yourself. So, if you want to become a singer or a dancer or a performer or a comedian or whatever it is, but think your friends or family will criticize or question it, to hell with them. To hell with anyone else's opinion or what anyone else thinks. Again, be honest with yourself and write down goals that resonate with you and things you think will make you happy and have a fulfilled life. Next, repeat the process, but now do it with one-year goals. You have a lot, eliminate them down to about five or so. Now, check to see if these one-year goals are in alignment with your five-year goals. This will help you determine when your one-year goals are accomplished whether you'll be moving in the right direction to accomplishing your five-year goals. Now write out your goals for six months from now, a month from now, a week from now. Keep it simple and choose three or four that are the most important. Be realistic about how much you can accomplish in a shorter span of time. Again, make sure they're in alignment with your long-term goals. You might find this entire exercise to be difficult or even uncomfortable or daunting, having to look so far ahead. I know I did. Keep in mind, as I mentioned earlier, nothing is set in stone here and you aren't obligated to follow any of this. In fact, you'll most likely change most of this. The purpose of all this is to get practice in setting goals, acknowledging that some of your fantasies and desires are actually quite doable if you wish them to be, and getting more in tune with your purpose and passions in life. Every few months you can revisit these things and review and revise them. Keep dates of revisions so you can look back and see the progression. And obviously with all the things you're truly passionate about and wish to have in your life, visualize them with the aforementioned techniques. You can do all separate scripts or one big script like a long film. That's entirely up to you. That is the Mooncast for tonight. I realize there's a lot to take in here. There's actually a lot more I could have talked about. I'll probably post time codes on YouTube to make reference a bit easier if you want to come back and review things. I'll more than likely revisit visualization again in the future because it's such a great tool to have in your arsenal. Hopefully this was enough to help a few people and get you moving in the right direction you wish to go. As I said, both authors are no longer with us, and their respective books are now widely available for free. I'll provide the links to the digital versions for those of you interested. Excellent books to check out. Music lovers, you can check out the second installment of Lou Music Hour Halloween Edition in my playlists on YouTube. There's also a short video art piece called Breathe on my YouTube channel, so check that out if it interests you. Please check out my art at the Lumooncast Tea Public Store. 
It's not just t-shirts, there are hoodies, kids clothing, wall art, tapestries, stickers, mugs, notebooks, all kinds of cool stuff. There's a 35% off Halloween sale site-wide. It starts Wednesday, October 27th until Halloween the following Sunday. $14 tees, $30 hoodies, all kinds of good deals. If you see something cool and would like to support my art, I would greatly appreciate it and thank you for taking a look. You can connect with me and get updates on Instagram and on the Lumooncast subreddit. I'll talk to you next time. Have a good evening and have fun visualizing your new life. Night, guys.